come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Hey everyone, I just wanted to start this off and say that I've been having some sinus issues lately, so I might sound a little weird, but I hope that you can bear with me. So welcome back to Ghouls Only Cast. This is episode 8, as always. This is Meg. Uh, We're almost through January now, you know, it's a new year, a fresh beginning, and you know, it's already been rife with issues, but you know, it's always foolish to think that all of our problems are just going to disappear when a year ends, but I'm going to be hopeful in spite of everything, and I hope that you're safe and taking care of yourself. I know I've been a nervous wreck for the past few weeks, but I've been a nervous wreck for about a year now, so whatever, it's okay, it's fine, I'll be fine. You'll be fine too, I hope. So let's just chill out together for a little while and talk about a really cool post-punk movie from 1982 called Smithereens. So this is a little strange, but I consider Smithereens to actually be part of a trilogy that isn't connected through continuity or anything like that. They just took place in the same dilapidated spaces in New York City in the early 80s. They share actors from the same scene at the time. The three movies that I consider to be a trilogy are Smithereens from 1982, Liquid Sky, also from the same year, and third is Perfect Strangers from 1984. And because if you take smithereens plus liquid sky, you get perfect strangers. And after a lot of discussion about this with Connor, who's going to join me uh, next episode, we've decided to call this the Broken Windows Trilogy, because they all took place in New York City at the time that the Broken Window Theory was introduced by social scientists in 1982. So if you don't know, the Broken Window Theory is a theory that was originally developed, in a sense, by controversial psychologist Philip Zimbardo, the mind behind the highly debatable Stanford Prison Experiment. In short, the Broken window theory essentially proposed the idea that vandalism, graffiti, and general disorder creates an environment that just encourages more crime that gets progressively worse. If one window is broken in an abandoned building, soon all the windows will be broken, yada yada yada, there's murder everywhere. This sort of aesthetic vandalism was commonplace in certain areas you'll see in these three movies, which all take place around the specific same neighborhoods in New York City that were, in the words of director Susan Seidelman, crumbling. It was considered a dangerous spot. The city at the time was still reeling from almost declaring total bankruptcy a few years prior, and Susan Berman, who plays the main character Wren in Smithereens, recalled that at the time, everyone was so strapped that she and practically everyone she knew were mugged in NYC at some point. Susan Seidelman, the director, said that it's easy to romanticize this time back in the 80s, New York City looking really cool and gritty, but it was pretty dangerous. So with a lot of tension and petty crime going around, the broken window theory was eventually put to the test. It was largely put into action by Mayor Rudy Giuliani in the early 90s, with the police being mobilized and encouraged to arrest people for crimes as minimal as jaywalking if they happened to see it or thought they did. So of course, arrest rates shot into the the stratosphere, even though the police commissioner at the time argued that it was not a zero-tolerance policy or anything to be scared of, though its principles revolved mainly around arresting impoverished teenagers and making them go to court and pay fines to hopefully scare them into not committing crimes again. 
Many of the neighborhoods in these films are now largely gentrified and look nothing like they do in the street scenes of these three movies, insofar as many of the buildings were actually in the middle of demolition during the production of the films. For example, the character Paul in Smithereens lives in a broken down van that sits on a plot of rubble and jagged stalagmites of concrete, which was a popular cruising spot for sex workers, and where that van sits in Smithereens became the home of Trump Place. Yeah, make of that what you will. But the overall gritty nature of NYC makes the flavor of these movies so incredibly distinct and interesting. Old New York, as seedy as much of it was, looked really fucking interesting and had a broken but still resilient character to it. You can see old NYC in a lot of movies, of course, like Basket Case or the spiritual sister film to Smithereens, Desperately Seeking Susan, also directed by Susan Seidelman. God, a lot of Susans in this. And it really is just kind of magical in a very grimy and bare way. What you saw was what you got in New York City. Times Square was not a tourist destination at all and there were porno theaters everywhere. But anyway, if you couldn't pick up on it yet, the next few episodes are covering these three films because they are all fascinating and fit together in a loose but cohesive way. Smithereens comes first because I want it to come first, so let's just jump right into that. When Susan Seidelman made her first feature film, Smithereens, she employed one of the oldest and best styles of filmmaking that I think is just so perfectly illustrated in Tim Burton's best, yes I said it, best movie, Ed Wood. When Ed Wood, in full Angora drag, spots the police and says to his filming crew, we don't have a permit. Run! Of course, what I'm talking about is guerrilla filmmaking. Much of Smithereens is shot on the street or in the subway with just enough shake to it that you can tell that they would have been busted at any moment. Susan Seidelman didn't know where to even begin to get permits and decided to just take her chances doing it illegally. But all that doesn't mean that it isn't shot well or anything like that because it most certainly is. You can definitely tell that there was some serious talent blossoming behind the camera. Smithereens was made on a modest budget of $40,000, partially funded by Susan's grandmother, who left her money after she passed away to go towards her eventual wedding. And I kind of just love that she used the money to fund a dream instead because I am a firm believer that weddings are just a huge waste of money. I mean, let's be real here. Rather than just getting some wedding, the whole world got Smithereens, which went on to be the very first American independent film to ever be selected to compete in the Cannes Film Festival in 1982, alongside such films as Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo and Lindsay Anderson's Britannia Hospital. And this is completely by coincidence, it would seem. See, Smithereens was originally shot on 16mm film, and films had to be 35mm to be submitted to the board at Cannes, so it looked like a lost cause to her. But while Susan was lamenting this fact to some friends at a random cafe one day, a couple guys at a small film company overheard her and offered to blow the movie up to 35mm, free of charge. Being screened at Cannes gave Susan a sizable amount of recognition and put her among the ranks of other indie filmmakers of the 80s to keep an eye on, like Sam Raimi, the Coen Brothers, and Spike Lee, to name a few. So just going back, Susan Seidelman was born in 1953 and lived a fairly typical suburban life outside of Philadelphia, always with an interest in art and fashion, but came to be interested in filmmaking after taking a college course that introduced her to the French New Wave cinema of Godard, Fellini, Truffaut, and the like. She admired the idea of strong female leads that were also flawed individuals, which came to be the basis of almost all of her films later on. She transferred from Drexel to New York University and eventually began to make short films and zero in on the ultimate goal of making her first feature film. 
While seeing one of those shitty student plays that are only attended by friends of the cast, one of her friends introduced her to fellow NYU student Susan Berman, who they thought would be perfect for her first film. Susan Berman, by the way, is not the one that was a Las Vegas gangster's daughter that later got murdered by alleged serial killer Robert Durst. The Susan Berman in Smithereens is just an actress. But moving on, the Susans got along pretty well and the preliminary shooting began for the movie. The film was originally a Breakfast at Tiffany's style story of a free-spirited girl who falls in love with an artist or an art dealer or something like that, and while doing an acting exercise on set in an old building, Susan Berman fell down a fire escape and broke her ankle, totally halting the production. In the weeks it took her to heal, Susan Seidelman decided that the script just wasn't working and reworked the vast majority of it with Ron Nicewainer, who went on to write the Academy Award-winning film Philadelphia. So now, instead of a free spirit falling in love with an art dealer, it became the story of Wren, a flighty punk girl who is a malignant narcissist that desperately wants to be revered even though she lacks talent, skills, and money. She's a girl who forms parasitic relationships but also gets used just as much by others, and her ultimate goal is getting to California because that is where the punk scene has migrated to. There are no real plans after getting to California, just an endless stream of lies about her business prospects to make herself seem cooler to anyone she might be talking to at any given moment. The story also largely involves a character named Paul, who's an innocent and lost soul that is just desperate for love, and Eric, a washed-up punk from a one-hit wonder band called Smithereens from 10 years before, who also wants to follow the scene to California and reignite his career. Totally different story from the original vision, and it's fucking great. So after making Smithereens, Susan Seidelman has gone on to make some of the most unique films that are just kind of hard to put your finger on. Like, they are so distinctly her. From the set dressing, to the costuming, to the plot, to the comedy. But there's no one way to point it out. But you know a Susan Seidelman movie when you see it. It just isn't glaringly obvious in the way, say, you know, a Tarantino or a Wes Anderson film is. Some of her movies that she made are Desperately Seeking Susan, starring Madonna and Susanna Arquette, with a cameo from Anne Carlyle, the star of Liquid Sky that we'll talk about in the next episode. She made She Devil, starring Meryl Streep in her first comedic role ever, and Roseanne Barr in her first film role. I mean, Roseanne is an asshole, as we all know by now, but she was really culturally significant for a while, and She Devil is a great movie. And then there's Making Mr. Right, which is so underrated, and I absolutely fucking love it. It's starring John Malkovich as a, like, he plays two roles. He is a cyborg and a professor who makes the, sty the cyborg. I don't know. It's, I can't really explain it to you right now. You just have to see it. But Susan Berman returns for a small role in this movie, and it's just absolutely adorable. It, but she plays a character that's so similar to Ren from Smithereens that I almost cried happy tears seeing her again when I saw it for the first time. I don't know. I just, I love Susan Seidelman's movies. She's made a few more that I haven't seen and some that haven't been really well received by the public. Like there's a movie called Cookie starring Peter Falk, but I still liked it, you know. Uh, Susan went on to direct some TV as well, most notably directing the pilot and helping to cast the design and overall look of Sex in the City. She also directed a couple episodes of the short-lived Comedy Central show Stella, which I was so obsessed with when it was airing back in the day. After I read about this, I actually went back and rewatched all 10 episodes of Stella because I hadn't seen it in, god, 15 years at this point, and my findings were as follows. 
I had a weird fucking sense of humor then. I still have a weird sense of humor. And holy shit, I still think that that show is great, except they have like a blackface gag in one of the episodes that Susan directed, which not very shwe at all. Like definitely did not have to do that. Wasn't funny. But still though, I cannot believe that Stella got canceled to make room for Mind of Mencia. But you know, he reaped what he sowed eventually because he's a fucking fraud. But anyway, Susan is still working. She's still awesome. You can see lots of cool interviews with her about filmmaking, which I recommend watching. She gives off the best mom vibes. And you know, so does Susan Berman if you watch her in interviews. And Susan Berman went on to play a few small parts and do some voice acting, mostly just living her life and being a cool lady, which, you know, serious respect for that. And then also in the movie, we've got Brad Wren, who plays Paul, but he is going to be talked about again for the upcoming episode on Perfect strangers because he's the lead in that one so I'm not going to go too in depth here about him but he did not do a whole lot of acting after Smithereens and because of that you know I'm just gonna move on to the character of the washed up punk named Eric who is played by Richard Hell. Good fucking lord Richard Hell. I have a really hard time figuring out where to even begin with this guy. He was born Richard Lester Myers in Kentucky to an experimental psychologist of animal behavior and another academic professor of unknown subject, couldn't find out what it was, and he describes in his autobiography as having almost an idyllic childhood until his father's sudden death when he was seven years old. He dropped out of high school and ran away from home with his best friend, where he was eventually arrested in Alabama for vandalizing buildings and committing arson. He floated around the country writing poetry for a while afterwards until settling in New York City, where his poems were featured in Rolling Stone, and he released a published book of his poetry before he even turned 21. Around this time, he joined a band called Television that regularly performed at the famous venue CBGB's on Bills with the Ramones and helped to usher in the first wave of punk bands in New York City. Richard Hell is one of those guys that if you like punk music at all, you may not have heard of him, but the bands that you love certainly have and were likely influenced by him and the other bands he was in. Patti Smith, for one, wrote the first press review of Television before she even formed the Patti Smith Group and cites him as an inspiration. So with the Ramones in television, there was also a cross-pollination of fashion that became the quintessential punk uniform. The Ramones were all about torn-up jeans and leather jackets, but Richard Hell came on stage with hair spiked straight up and he held his moldering clothes together with safety pins. At the same time, well actually a little bit before, you also had the flamboyant, trashy glam aesthetic that the New York Dolls were so well known for. And around 1975, Jerry Nolan and Johnny Thunders of the New York Dolls left the band and formed a group with Richard Hell called the Heartbreakers. And all three of those guys had serious drug issues, so I can't even imagine what their practices would have been like. But the former manager of the New York Dolls, Malcolm McLaren, had been keeping an eye on the fashions of these three bands in particular and went back to the UK to open a clothing shop called Sex that specialized in the cultivated punk uniform. He formed another band to promote the look, essentially, slapped a Union Jack on it, and voila, the Sex Pistols were born. The yowling, dysfunctional, gangbang bastard child of Richard Hell. After the Heartbreakers imploded, he formed Richard Hell and the Voidoids, where his most popular songs were formed, or recreated, such as Blank Generation, Love Comes in Spurts, and The Kid with the Replaceable Head. When you listen to some of it, you can definitely hear a lot of other bands that came after. 
Richard Hell has just been this really influential guy, but you don't hear about him that much like you do the Joey Ramones or Sid Vicious's of punk. And, you know, Sid Vicious couldn't even fucking play. He just had the look that mostly originated from Richard Hell. He is still working, though. He even, you know, in the last year or so, did a collaboration with Gucci on a clothing line. So yeah, it doesn't sound like he's doing too bad or anything like that. I mean, it's better than doing butter commercials like Johnny Rotten was doing in the 2000s, but that butter did look pretty good. But yeah, some of Richard Hell's music is played in Smithereens as the fictional band Smithereens, the one album that they put out. And the music is kind of an acquired taste to some, but I think it's a lot of fun. Here, I'm just going to play some for you right now. This is Love Comes in Spurts. I was a child who wanted all of some wild The Susans were both kind of awestruck that Richard Hell was willing to work on the movie, but Seidelman was a bit wary of working with him because he had substance abuse problems and was never purported to be a really reliable guy with a strong work ethic. She even went so far as to make up a little back room in her apartment for him to live in during production so that she would know where he was at all times and could guarantee that he would have a ride to wherever they were shooting that day with no excuses or having to wait around for him. But she said he totally shocked and surprised everyone. Though not without his foibles, Richard was 100% committed to the role and was very professional to work with. He was soft-spoken, charming, and really easygoing, but he worked hard to nail his lines. And he totally does. He does a great job. And if you disagree with me on this one, I want you to go back and watch the pizza scene, the from, you know, rock and roll high school, and then come and talk to me. He does a fine job, and he works very well in the movie. So I think that's enough preamble for now. As always, if you are suitably intrigued and want to go in blind to this movie, feel free to stop and go and seek it out. It's on HBO Max right now. It's a Criterion Collection movie. Otherwise, let's just jump right into the plot. This is Smithereens. The film starts with a girl on the subway stealing a pair of mod-style checkerboard sunglasses off of another girl while a song by the Feelies plays. The Feelies were a band that never gained critical success but influenced a ton of other indie bands, and a large portion of Smithereen's soundtrack is made up of their music. The girl who stole the sunglasses runs away. Her hair is short and fluffy. She wears a vinyl houndstooth miniskirt over a gnarled pair of fishnets, chunky socks over that, and a busted pair of silver high heels. This is our main character, Ren, who is considered by many to be one of the most obnoxious, unlikable protagonists in all of film history. Back on the subway again, we see Ren posting up a metric shitload of flyers all over the windows of the train car. A young guy in a stained t-shirt sits and watches her with interest, to which she smirks and hands him one of her flyers. She gets off the train and proceeds to canvas even more flyers on the walls of the station. They all have the same design on them, a black and white Xerox photo of Ren's face pulling an angry grimace. 
the young guy decides to hop off the train and follow her through the street, hanging back at a leisurely pace as Ren plows forward through the crowds on the sidewalk, looking over her shoulder and bashing into several people, which I am almost 100% sure is totally real and not scripted at all. Living in a city, the bittersweet symphony music video just happens in real life all the time. That's just the way it is. It achieves one thing that is really important about Ren's character, though, that she doesn't look out for anyone other than herself. A little aside here, this is your first glimpse of some random sidewalks in 1980s NYC and unsuspecting normal people walking by, and it's just so cool to see the fashion and the signage so perfectly displayed for us here in such a far-off year, that some things look so different but some things look exactly the same because trends cycling back around and that sort of thing. I just think it looks really cool. Ren ducks into her workplace, which is, conveniently for her, a copy shop. The young guy hangs around outside and watches her argue and roll her eyes with her boss, and then she begins working, and then he wanders off. Some time passes and the young guy returns to the copy shop with an ice cream cone that magically disappears in the next shot as he runs after Ren as she goes stalking down the street again with a new stack of Xerox flyers in her hand. It is, again, a selfie of her, this time wearing the stolen sunglasses, and the words, who is this, are pasted along the top like a ransom note. Like she's literally trying to drum up intrigue about herself. The guy walks along with her and tries to introduce himself, and this is where we meet Paul. Poor, sweet Paul. Ren ignores him and just hands him another one of her selfies. She leaves Paul behind and continues on to a music venue, putting her selfies underneath the windshield wipers of all the parked cars along the way. She shoves through everyone waiting in line, claiming to be on the guest list, and enters the club. This place was called the Peppermint Lounge, the second one of the name to be exact. The first Peppermint Lounge, before it closed, was where the twist craze of the 1960s originated and was practically oozing with famous guests like Marilyn Monroe, Truman Capote, and Audrey Hepburn to name a few, and it held performances from groups like the Beach Boys and it had the debut of the Ronettes. The second Peppermint Lounge, when it opened in 1980, had guests like David Bowie and Mick Jagger and had performances from groups like the Cramps and Billy Idol. This second Peppermint Lounge is now closed, though, and it appears to be now where a Hyatt Hotel sits. But yeah, Ren goes into the Peppermint Lounge and watches the end of a set for a band, and then after, she mobs the singer in the VIP area as he sits down to have a drink. She talks to him about starting her own band and wants pointers, and keeps kind of reminding him that they know each other. Does he remember her? but he just kind of brushes her off and doesn't even speak to her. She angrily leaves and passes Paul on the way out, to which she steals his beer right out of his hand. It's just like, come on, let's blow this popsicle stand, as if they're best buds who came there together. Like a faithful pet, he eagerly follows her and listens to her endlessly berate the performing band that night until she gets to her apartment building. He just stands there and she has this hostile reaction to him being there. Like she told him to come with her, not saying where they're going, and then when she gets to her destination and he doesn't even know what's going on, her reaction is just, what, are you waiting for something? As if he was acting presumptuous or something. It just shows what kind of relationship that Paul is in for, that there's this girl who uses him to some end, in this case looking important by leaving the club with someone and getting an escort home, and then brushing him off and acting almost as if he was doing something malicious by doing something she asked for. But instead of being put off by her snapping at him, he asks her on a date, and she gives him a, you know, maybe sometime, I don't know. She walks into her building quietly to not alert the landlord of her presence, and goes home to her roommate who appears to be passed out after eating an entire box of cornflakes. 
The next morning, we get a glimpse of where Paul lives. As I mentioned earlier, he lives in the back of a van that is parked on a plot of land that's made up of jagged rubble and garbage. When he wakes up, he takes the photo of Wren and holds it up next to a photo of another girl that he has framed next to where he sleeps, comparing the two of them. While shaving in his front seat, a local pimp wanders up and offers to buy the van off of him in cash, which he refuses. Later, he waits for Wren outside of her building, unintentionally wearing the same exact outfit as Ash Williams in The Evil Dead, which is, uh, it's kind of delightful to be honest, but Wren is not happy to see him at all, even though he is doing a fantastic Bruce Campbell cosplay. Clearly, she's got no taste. Wren tries to just shake him off, but he keeps trying to get her to go on a date with him, and she insists that she's always just so busy and is trying to take care of, quote, this business thing and has appointments that she has to keep. But once he offers to buy her food and take her to a movie, suddenly she's totally gung-ho and her very important business meeting uh, suddenly is just not so important anymore. The movie they go to see is absolutely fucking amazing. It's a fake B-movie made for the film where a girl is getting attacked in an alley by a guy that kind of looks like Coffin Joe, who turns into a weird brain-like alien thing that sucks the life out of the girl. I don't know, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. But the girl in the movie, interestingly enough, is none other than Cookie Mueller. Cookie was, if you don't know, a dreamlander, meaning that she was in almost all of John Waters' early films, and she was one of his closest friends. She's always so good in his movies in the only way that dreamlanders can be. She died of AIDS, unfortunately, after contracting it via intravenous injection of heroin. She apparently, on top of dealing cocaine, thought heroin was essentially a revelation and served it along with turkey at Thanksgiving. I obviously don't approve of that shit at all, but I do just really like her in John Waters' movies, and she has a quote about death that I really appreciate as someone that has a tremendous fear of it. I'm just going to tell you her quote about it. So she said, Fortunately, I am not the first person to tell you that you will never die. You simply lose your body. You will be the same, except you won't have to worry about rent or mortgages or fashionable clothes. You will be released from sexual obsessions. You will not have drug addictions. You will not need alcohol. You will not need to worry about cellulite or cigarettes or cancer or AIDS or venereal disease. You will be free. I don't know, I really like that quote a lot. But yeah, for seemingly no reason, here she is, a famous girl in her own small circle playing a little role in a young woman's first feature film. And if you don't know who Cookie is, there's an amazing picture of her with a beehive hairdo and she is absolutely blanketed in cigarette smoke. It's reminiscent of a Diane Arbus photo and it perfectly encapsulates who she was. I feel like it wouldn't be right to not point her out here because I am a huge John Waters fan. I love his movies. Throughout this little B-movie, Ren, who is sporting a huge black eye for some unknown reason, keeps kind of wiggling away from Paul as he tries to snuggle closer to her. And then after the movie, Paul tries to convince her to come back to his van and listen to music until Ren spots someone. She sees a guy with spiky hair getting out of a taxi while a blonde woman absolutely pummels and kicks him, screaming out that she hates him as he very deftly steals money from her purse on his tumble onto the street. This is Eric, played by Richard Hell. Ren says, oh, I know that guy, and they follow him into the bar across the street. 
And if you love old arcade cabinets, by the way, you will love this scene because this bar seems absolutely crammed with them. And like there's this weird patriotic pinball machine that I'd never seen before. I don't know. But while Paul is playing Pac-Man, Ren rattles off some story to Eric about how she lit some lawyer's newspaper on fire while riding the bus. But you know, they kicked her out, but she didn't care. She didn't even pay anyway. And he just seems to not even really be listening to her. Ren then shifts the conversation to figure out who that blonde woman was, which he won't divulge much about. She gets interrupted by Paul, who has been getting hassled by a watch-peddling grifter and just really wants to leave. Paul seems really frustrated, but Ren tells him she's trying to make a business connection here and to just wait for a few minutes. I don't know what kind of fucking business she's trying to run, though, because when Paul comes back later to get her, she's slow dancing with Eric. And distraught, Paul leaves, and Ren goes back to Eric's friend's gross dungeon-esque apartment. There's huge promotional posters and boxes of the singles for his band hit song that was relevant over a decade ago just absolutely everywhere in here. Eric expresses his desire to get to LA and Ren agrees with him, saying that she's been headhunted to become a road manager for a musical act. Yeah, fucking right. We meet Eric's friend at this point who has an extremely bloody hand and is playing around with shards of a broken mirror over the bathroom sink. He's hardly in this movie, but good lord, he is arguably the most captivating character. Everything he says is in this slow, childlike slur, and he looks like every generic punk fashion accessory thrown into a food processor. And he has this weird belt buckle that has all these flashing lights and wires coming out of it like a rudimentary bomb or some shit? I don't know. Also, and this is what I find like the funniest thing about him is that in the face he looks like Jello Biafra, which is probably really unintentional, but I don't know. I think it's really funny. Eric passes out on the only bed in the apartment, and Ren and Eric's flamboyant friend, Mello Biafra, as I like to call him, crash next to him, with Ren having to fight him off as he very sloppily tries to sexually assault her in the night. The blonde woman has come back and is just sitting and watching it happen while also watching a televangelist broadcasting. Ren gets up and decides to consume mass quantities of peanut butter in the kitchen, and Eric comes through, brushing her off and ignoring the blonde woman as well, saying that he's got a lot of business stuff to attend to that day. Ren tells him, oh yeah, she's got a ton of business appointments too, and that she'd give him all of her phone numbers too, but gosh dang it, the whole place is just getting rewired so she can't. Sorry, what a shame. He kisses her goodbye, and he asks, what was your name again? Ren walks home, where kids are just having the time of their lives playing in fucking bricks in these absolutely demolished and run-down foundations of buildings. Sign of the times, I guess. And lo and behold, her roommates have split and she is locked out of her apartment for not paying the rent for four months. Her landlord, by the way, is played by the old woman who played Divine's mom in John Waters' Polyester, and she's the old woman in Street Trash who rats on Bert in the grocery store when he's stuffing chicken in his pants. Absolutely fantastic. I love this woman. What a career. But she flings Ren's clothes onto the street after she threatens to sue her and then douses her with a bucket of cold water. All of her clothes in hand, Ren wanders the busted streets of New York until she comes to her sister's house. Her sister is just, oof, she is something. Wandering around during the day in a bikini, half of her hair and cheap curlers and a lit cigarette hanging on for dear life out of her mouth while she perpetually squints through one eye like Bluto from Popeye due to the smoke. 
Rin is trying to fleece her and her husband for money, even though her sister seems really insistent that she just needs to give up this New York dream and go back home to her parents in New Jersey. Rin keeps telling anyone who will listen, though, that she's getting paid this week and even tries complimenting them, but no one's having it. No one wants to give her any money. Her brother-in-law seems to absolutely hate her guts, too, and makes a remark that heavily implies that they barely recently had to pay for Rin to get an abortion. Out of options to get quick cash, Ren tracks down Paul and tries to act sweet, going, hey, why'd you leave me with that creep last night and all that shit, but he just tells her to leave him alone. She tries guilt-tripping him into helping her break into her apartment, even accusing him of abandoning her when he's her best friend, and flips it around to start berating herself to make him feel bad for her, and eventually he relents. They're able to break in and steal back her portable television set, and they return to the vacant lot that he's been squatting on. Ren learns that Paul is from Montana and is on a cross-country road trip to reignite with his girlfriend in New Hampshire. Ren gives off the impression that she and Paul live together now, possibly as more than friends, but she returns to Eric's place the next day to rip up pictures of him and the blonde woman together and light them on fire, almost setting a blaze in the nightstand by the bed as she tries to hide the evidence. Eric returns with the blonde girl and is surprised and absolutely pissed off to see Ren. He starts criticizing her and telling her that it's really fucked up to just wander into people's homes and start fires, but she just tries to change the subject to her living situation like it's nothing and that causes Eric to fly into a rage. Rin just spouts off that she has a million one other places that she can be right now and leaves, showing that while he was away, she pasted up several of her selfies around his apartment. Well, I guess it's his friend's apartment, but you get it. For some reason though, Eric follows her onto the street and wordlessly coaxes her back inside. Meanwhile, Paul, who's been waiting for Ren to come home this whole time, has a really sweet exchange with a prostitute who gets in his van to escape the cold outside. She at first offers her services, but then asks if she can just stay for a moment. They talk about the weather, art, and she offers him half of her chicken salad sandwich that her mother made for her that morning. It's strangely touching and feels like a very real conversation. I think it might be, you know, a highlight in the movie, to be honest. That sex workers are just people who made clay turtles in school, and they hate unpredictable weather, and worry that their mothers are going senile, but their moms still pack them lunch for the workday. They're not some kind of faceless, succubus creature. It was really progressive at the time, and still is now, I think. The next day, Ren is at the copy shop working, and this frame's probably my favorite shot of the whole movie. She's leaning against a copier reading this magazine called Those Who Died Young, and it has these kind of crappy airbrush illustrations of Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, and Jimi Hendrix on it, and plastered all over the walls around her are flyers for shows and album promos for The Cars and Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. People seem to forget about that album. And there's a little black and white TV blaring an expose on man-made disasters. It's a perfect little time capsule and is one of those images that you can just pluck out of the movie and get a gist for the whole aesthetic that Susan Seidelman was going for. I love it. Ren goes to her co-worker Cecile's apartment afterwards and blares the Smithereens record, which is actually The Boy with the Replaceable Head by Richard Hell and the Voidoids, to which Cecile gets upset and says that her neighbors hate her now because Ren does this shit every single time she comes over. Ren, as always, just brushes it off and starts yammering on about how Eric asked her to go to California with him, which, you know, I think we see a pattern here now. Ren gets criticized, she doesn't miss a beat to turn it around and brag about how important 
important she is when in reality she's just compulsively lying for no good fucking reason. I know that there are people out there that do this and holy shit, if you are one of those people, stop it, okay? No more. It's time to stop. Stop it. Like, I'm going to mention this later, but Ren ticks every single box for a clinically diagnosed malignant narcissist. But moving on, Ren is just like, oh yeah, Eric is making all the arrangements for us to leave in a few weeks. Total yep. Hmm. You know, since it's such a short amount of time and I'm going to be, you know, leaving New York forever, how about I just move into your tiny apartment with you and your four other roommates until then? And of course, Cecile says no and asks why she isn't staying with Eric if he loves her so much, to which Ren is just kind of blithely like, oh, he wants me to, but I don't know if I want to rush into things with him. It's just relentless bullshitting. She is such a bullshit artist. When you see things from all angles, it just makes Ren all the more exhausting to listen to. Ren makes a phone call now on the pretenses of going to see Eric and hook Cecile up with one of his friends, but then tells Cecile that she can't come with her unless she lets Ren move in with her. I mean, Cecile already said no and stated that A, all of her friends hate Ren, B, there's five people living there already, six, they're on the verge of being booted by their landlord, and H, the landlord said that if anyone even stays one night, they're out on their asses. But Rin does not care. That does not benefit her. So torn between the desire to not be homeless and the desire to possibly get laid, Cecile relents and they head back to Eric's. He isn't there, though. It's just Mello Biafra, who is drunk as shit, and Cecile really warms up to him. Ren just sits around taking selfies while she waits, but eventually drags Cecile out of there. She loses Cecile somewhere along the way and wanders drunkenly to Paul's van to go to bed. He wakes up and argues with Ren about the fact that she only shows up when she has nowhere else to go, to which she throws back her golden oldie, I have a million and one other places I could be right now. He still expresses a kind of exasperated but hopeful desire for them to be in a real relationship and lets her know that he plans on leaving New York in a week. But ah, of course, Ren is the one who will be leaving soon, and she's going somewhere more important and cooler than he could ever even hope to imagine because she is just so important. The next day, Ren goes looking for Eric and finds him at a cafe actually having a business lunch with a woman who is hoping to get Eric's career back on track. Maybe find him some investors, do some promoting, that sort of thing. She leaves to make a phone call and Ren comes in and plops right down in the woman's seat and starts digging into her lunch as casually as if it were hers the whole time. Eric says he's trying to take care of some business and she's just like, oh yeah, me too. I've been so busy with business stuff. You know, it's probably why you've been having such a hard time getting a hold of me. Like, I can only take so much more of this. You know, if she wasn't completely and utterly incompetent, this insane posturing and hustle could probably work in her favor if she was even doing a modicum of real, quote, business. The hustle never stops and the hustle never fucking starts either. So the woman returns and Ren just acts like an insufferable prick to her, telling her to bring her a Diet Pepsi and then refusing to get out of her seat and then insinuating that the businesswoman is a prostitute because she's doing business with Eric. This really, really justifiably pisses the woman off and she screams at Ren to get out of her seat. 
While she and Eric continue their actual business discussion, Rin returns to the table to throw a cigarette onto the woman's plate and ask Eric if she can have a sip of his Pepsi. When he tells her it's Coke, she goes, oh, I hate Coke, and throws it in the woman's face. Like any sane person would do, the woman springs up like a fucking cat with hydraulics and starts absolutely wailing on Ren, and Eric grabs his stuff and quietly and very, very swiftly books it out of there as if his life depends on it. But, you know, he takes a second to turn back and watch the fight and laugh a bit because, I mean, could you really resist? Later that night, Paul is walking home and gets approached by the pimp from before and several of his girls, hoping to buy the van off of him. Paul declines once again and finds Wren curled up in the van with a bloody nose. She seems to have finally had some humility knocked into her by the fight and questions whether or not she might just be a horrible person that no one really cares about. Finally, at last. But Paul very sweetly cleans up her nose and she expresses that she really missed him and then they sleep together. Paul tells her that, you know, he still intends on leaving New York for New Hampshire soon and hopes that Wren will come along with him, but she kind of looks anxious about that prospect. What's in it for her? I think Wren really likes the stability of Paul, that he's always there, but is just not interested in him at all. I don't think she even really knows what she wants. But the next morning, Ren finds Eric hanging out inside the van, and he tells her that the plans to go to LA fell through due to a lack of funds. Ren floats the possibility that she might be going to New Hampshire with, quote, a friend, and Eric says, you know, that's too bad because he came up with an idea for them to get some extra money. Ren turns him down, but after he kisses her goodbye, she changes her mind and wants to know what his plan is. Cut to that night in a lounge where Ren has seemingly been set up to sit with this older guy in a suit and flirt relentlessly with him. He is the saltiest little saltine cracker in the world and appears to be married to Peggy Hill because he keeps putting out these lame and obvious observations like, My wife says that drinking and driving do not mix. But Ren suggests rather plainly that they should take a cab back to his hotel room together, wink, 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 wink. He seems really flustered and drunk and mentions his wife again, but Ren very easily convinces him. They get in a cab together and Eric hops into the back with them. He takes a gun and jams it into the man's ribs and quietly tells him to give him everything he's got. Ren insists that the guy should be allowed to keep his wedding ring though, but Eric compromises by saying that he can keep his ring, but he has to give Eric his pants. Eric and Ren get out of the taxi and run off to go count the money that they stole. They voice their dreams of LA together, and the next day, Ren is back at Paul's, who is absolutely heartbroken. I haven't really mentioned it, but Paul is an artist, and you can see it in one shot that he's been working on a portrait of Ren, which is just really upsetting and frustrating. I mean, he is so into her, and she just treats him like garbage. Paul tells her that he's still really serious about leaving New York, and Ren just starts grandstanding, as she always does, about how she's going to LA after all and she's got big, big plans. She bags up all of her crap that she's been storing in Paul's van and goes to leave. Paul finally stands up for himself and tells Ren that she just can't keep being so self-centered and using people the way she does, that she's been really hurtful to people, especially to him. Ren just takes this as him being upset that she isn't going to New Hampshire with him, completely missing the point altogether in a way that makes you wonder if she just has no amount of empathy whatsoever, no self-reflection in her heart at all, or, like, is she really just completely socially oblivious and fucking stupid? Like, it's really astounding. It's hard to tell. 
Wren gathers up all her shit and goes to where Eric's been staying, only to find out that he has already left for LA without her. The blonde girl is sitting outside the door and offers Wren her cigarette. Wren tells the blonde girl that she was supposed to manage Eric's group and that he took off with all of her money. The blonde girl really quietly tells Wren that he did the same exact thing to her, and more than that, she's his wife. They both commiserate together for a little while longer in a way that you don't see enough in movies but happens a lot in real life. I only personally have had this experience with other girls, but I'm sure it happens for all genders where you and someone have a shared romantic experience where you've been completely fucked over by the same person and it just brings you together. It's a very melancholic bonding experience, but it can really cement things into a decent friendship sometimes. So there's no LA for Ren now so she goes down her list of people that she can mooch off of. She stops at Cecile's where her roommate, in so many words, tells her to fuck off forever. Cecile is pretty powerless to the situation, to which Ren angrily reassures her again that she has a million and one other places that she could be right now, and plods onward to the next stop on her mooch tour. Strangely enough, she settles on going to the Peppermint Lounge to try to harass the singer from the beginning of the film who has literally never paid attention to her before. Lo and behold, he ignores her again and has her thrown out onto the street and Ren loses half of her worldly possessions in the process. Next stop, Ren calls her sister's house. When her brother-in-law answers the phone, she just hangs up. She spends the night on the subway with several other homeless folks and in the morning wanders in a daze to Paul's van. Paul is not there though, just the pimp who bought the van for $700 to be a bangmobile for his prostitutes without considering that the van didn't even fucking run. She gets her portable TV out of the van, ignoring the prostitutes hanging out in the back, and I just wanted to point out that apparently one of the prostitutes is Goretta Goretta, who played the character Rosemary in Lumberta Baba's Demons. If you're bad with names, she's the girl that pricks herself on the mask and is the first person to turn in the movie. I should probably talk about that one sometime. That is a really good movie. I like that one. Ren wanders along in the middle of pretty dense traffic and starts getting catcalled and propositioned by a random guy in a convertible with the densest mustache I have ever seen. Eventually, he asks her, have you got a better place to spend your time? And she turns back and looks at him with a devastated look on her face. And that's where the movie ends. It turns out Ren didn't have a million and one other places she could be this whole time. Shock of shocks! But it's an open ending. You don't know what happened to Ren. Susan Seidelman said during a Q&A some years back that she believes that Ren would have eventually made it to LA, it just would have taken a really long time, which I think is incredibly optimistic. I always assumed that Ren would end up dead somewhere, to be honest, that she would piss off the wrong person or get herself in a really precarious situation. Ren, you kind of feel bad for her, you kind of like her, but she is a truly abhorrent character. But Susan Berman plays her in such a beautiful way that you can really believe that she is a fully fleshed out human being that very possibly has a personality disorder or something. If you look up the symptoms for malignant narcissism, Ren hits every single bullet point. I'll save you the time, I'll do it right here. Here are the symptoms. A grandiose sense of self-importance persistent fantasies about unlimited success and power, a belief that they are special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with similar high-status people and organizations, constant need for attention, admiration, and praise, a sense of entitlement and expectation of special treatment, a tendency to use others for their own needs or wants, 
a lack of empathy or unwillingness slash inability to recognize and honor the needs and feelings of others, proneness to envy or having a belief that they are envied by others, a sense of arrogance shown in behaviors and or attitudes. I mean, that's Wren right down to the ground. But on the other hand, in her own right, Wren is simply decades ahead of her time and could be comfortably plopped down in 2021 with our social media culture because she just wanted to be famous for being famous or at least look like she was. You know, when she talks to Eric about what their plans are for California, he wants to get a music group together and hopefully reignite his career. She talks about how she just wants to lay by the pool and eat tacos and sign autographs. Autographs? Why? For what? I mean, throughout the movie, we see that she puts a lot of time and effort to just paste selfies on every single surface she can find in public and literally asks the world, who is she? To drum up intrigue about her. Rin wanted to be an influencer, to rub elbows with the cool people without ever having to do any work. And before social media, where you can project via cultivated photos that you have a perfect life even though in reality it's a fucking dumpster fire, Rin shows us that you just had to spew as much bullshit as possible at anyone you came into contact with and hope that they just believed you. Ultimately, though, I really feel like she should have just swallowed her fucking pride and went back to live with her parents for a while. Some things just don't work out, and if you burn every bridge you cross and piss off everyone along the way, you're going to have a really hard time getting by, and lying will only make every second more painful. I think that in some capacity, we have all met a Wren at some point in our lives. Her story, in its own way, is timeless. This story is so incredibly relevant, even today, but the settings are just this absolutely perfectly preserved time capsule of a city that is so different now. If you aren't sold on the story, you have to see Smithereens just for the street views, the street fashion, the tech, the music, the ads, it's just so perfect. That's part of the beauty of Susan Seidelman never getting permits. We get to watch a compelling story with this absolute beast of a character that just seems so real, and we get to see New York City as it truly was in 1982, zits and all. I definitely recommend Smithereens if you like Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, Times Square, or Susan Seidelman's sister film to Smithereens called Desperately Seeking Susan, or either one of the next two movies that I'll be covering. So join me and my guest host, Connor, next time for the second part of this Not Really a Trilogy trilogy, where we will be talking about one of the most self-indulgent, cringy, supremely baffling, artsiest, fartsiest movies I have ever fucking seen in my life, Liquid Sky. So until then, take good care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul.